The, the New Testament reading is from Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful to Christ, in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him... Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise." who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Thank you, uh, Elia, very much for reading so clearly for us. Let's keep that passage of God's word open as we begin our new sermon series from the letter of the Ephesians today. And let's pray for God's help as we sit. Father, you are a speaking God, so make us a listening people that our minds and hearts would be shaped and encouraged and enabled by all that you say to us today. And we ask these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, at the heart of Karl Marx's dream was the creation of a new man, a new society occupied by a new humanity. But how to create him was the key question. The dream for Karl Marx was clear. If only man could be set free from the shackles of capitalism, removed from all that inhibits, then man could soar to a new heights. Leon Trotsky, the Soviet revolutionary and political theorist, described how this newly freed man would then make his purpose to master his feelings, to rise to the new heights of consciousness, to extend the wires of his will into hidden recesses, to rise to a new plane, to a higher social biological type, or if you like, a new superman. The Cuban revolutionary Che Guevara put it like this, to build communism it's necessary simultaneously with the new material foundations to build a new man and a new woman. The dream was for a homo communist, the new communist man, 
a person of perfect virtue, perfect productivity, and a new perfect unity for the whole of humanity. So Trotsky wrote in his book, Literature and Revolution, the average human type will then rise to the heights of an Aristotle, and beyond this ridge, new peaks will rise. Because what communism is after is what we're all after. It's what every generation wants. We're desperate in this world of pain to make progress. If only, we say, we could make our world better. If only, we say, we could recreate ourselves. If only we could create a new man for a new world, we would then all live happily ever after and enjoy a new utopia, heaven on earth. But Marxism was to be a failed dream. For when no communist Superman appeared, the state realized it had to embrace the vision of selfless collectivism with force. And so for communists, this nirvana, this utopia, was to eventually become a mass graveyard, a non-existent utopia reached through a sea of blood. So where is our hope? And the great good news as we begin our new sermon series this morning is that it is not in the broken dreams of humanity, but in the promise of God's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not a vague promise of the future, but a real promise, because God has acted in the past to secure this future for us. And as we journey through this letter to the Ephesians, it is about this new man and this new society that Paul is teaching. And it's off the Richter scale big. What lies ahead for us is breathtaking in its glory, revolutionary. And the revolution, says Paul, has begun. The letter opens in verses 1 to 2, much like any letter we might write or an email we might receive. In every email that we receive, there's a from, there's a to, and then there's the subjects. This letter, verse 1, is from Paul, but he's no ordinary correspondent. He describes himself as an apostle not just an interested third party for this church, but a founding apostle. The word means that he has seen the risen Lord Jesus and been commissioned as an authoritative teacher of the word of God for the life of this church and theirs. From Paul the apostle to the saints. We hear that word and we assume the saints are some super holy group the canonized of the Roman Catholic Church, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Ignatius of Loyola. But the Greek word just means the set-apart ones. The set-apart ones, that's Christians, set-apart to belong to the set-apart gods. And these set-apart people are living in real time, in real history, in Ephesus. 
The date of the letter is around about 60 to 62 AD, and they live in Ephesus, the leading city of Asia Minor, which was the Turkey of their day, a commanding city of, of importance and commerce, a leading Asianic trading port. It was a leading city of commerce, a London or a New York of its day, but also a leading city in the arts and in spirituality. The skyline dominated not by the Empire State Building, but by a temple to Diana of the Ephesians, a vast edifice, 420 feet long, 60 feet high, dominating the city, this center to pagan worship. So we'll see it's not easy living for Jesus Christ as the set-apart ones in a city like that. And so Paul is writing, and the subject bar, verse 2, is this. The grace and the peace which comes from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful summary of the gospel. What is the gospel it is grace from God's, the Father, because this is the Father who loves you and has acted to bestow his kindness on you forever. It's grace, and a grace that leads to peace. Not so much the feeling of peace, though that's a good thing, here the reality of peace, the extraordinary reality that because of his grace, we are a people at peace with him because the peace deal has been signed in the red ink of the bloods of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know whether you like mechanics. I don't know whether you like on a Sunday afternoon to open the hoods of your car and have a look inside. <clears throat> many do. It's not my idea of a fun afternoon, but uh, many do. And if you open the hood on your car, you'll find the carburetor and the crankshank and the cylinder block and the sump and the combustion chamber. What Paul's going to be doing over these next few weeks is opening the hood on grace and peace. And the more we see of it, the more we'll marvel as our minds are stretched and our hearts transformed so that we can live for grace and peace in the beauty and marvel and wonder of all that God has done for us. The letter begins proper in verses 3 to 14, which in the original Greek forms one sentence, 12 verses. And as Paul begins this exposition of grace and peace, it's as if he gets carried away. It's as if the word flow begins to build like a mighty river into this cascading Niagara Falls of praise to God. As Paul neither pauses for breath nor punctuates with full stops as the sentence just runs on and on like a steam train building speed. And all the commentators struggle to find an illustration or a metaphor to describe what Paul describes as he begins in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. 
As Paul continues, commentators describe this as a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. Another commentator describes it as a galloping racehorse. Others describe this as the opening movement of a great symphony like Beethoven's Fifth or Beethoven's Ninth, the choral symphony, as notes are struck, which we return to later on. Other commentators describe this as a golden chain of many links or as a snowball at the top of a mountain that begins small, but as we move through these verses, this sentence, it just gets bigger into this avalanche of praise. Praise be to God. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The word blessed is the root word from which we get our word eulogy. But the tense is not presence. It's not that God is blessing us now. And it's not future. It's not that he will one day bless us. It's much more glorious. The tense is past. He has blessed us. The tense is actually aroist. He has blessed us in the past in a once and for all decisive, never to end, never to change act. And what he has blessed you with in the past is every spiritual blessing. There is no other blessing to receive. You have received the full package deal. Every conceivable blessing, spiritually speaking, that you need or that you want isn't being given or might one day be given. It has already been given in a once and for all, never-ending, ever-continuing act. When I was at college, we had this shower that was kind of weird and it didn't quite work. It was either too hot or too cold. It was your college dorm like that? And it would be a drip, drip shower. So depressing. I'll never forget my first ever power shower. It was actually in Sydney. I was staying in this apartment and I went under it and it was extraordinary. I was almost sort of blown away by the force of the water coming out of it. And the picture here is of the power shower of grace. There's nothing stingy or slightly holding back from God. He has given us everything. In 2012, the body of a man called Timothy Gray was discovered by some children who were sledging under a Union Pacific Railroad in a town in rural Wyoming. That may not sound very exciting to you, only that this man, Timothy Gray, was a long-lost relative of the reclusive and eccentric New York heiress, Hugette Clark, who herself had died at the age of 104 a year before him. She was extraordinarily wealthy, her apartments 
totaled a worth of $53 million. She had a penthouse in New York that she had sold for $24 million. Her apartment and estate in Connecticut was worth $14 million. She owned $79 million in stocks and shares and trusts. She had $75 million worth of personal property, which included a painting by Monet and a doll collection worth millions in itself. This man, Timothy Gray, was selected to be one of the beneficiaries. He was to get 6.25% of her copper mining fortune, which was estimated conservatively to be worth $307 million. Yet, he died a homeless man, freezing to death in rural Wyoming, totally oblivious to the fact that he was worth, by inheritance, a stunning $350 million. Because there are so many Christians like this, we live here on planet Earth in our struggle with cancer, our battle with depression, stressed by life or by the kids, fearful of the culture, irritated by tensions at church. And we go around the world like Eeyore with faces like a funeral, sad and depressed, all the time myopic, and oblivious to the extraordinary reality that we could not be more blessed by God because of what he has done for us. And this is what Paul wants to show us this morning. There's a past gift of election, a present gift of adoption, a future gift of inheritance as he moves from eternity past to eternity future, starting with the past, which is verse 4. Because Paul says we've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. We have been predestined to be adopted as sons. Paul is teaching the extraordinary truth that if you're Christian here today, you have been chosen by God's. Verse 4, you have been predestined by God's. Verse 5, God has selected you. He has picked you. And this wasn't random. Salvation wasn't something we just stumbled across. It wasn't just how the cookie crumbled. Way back in eternity past, Billions of years before the world was created, before you were a twinkle in your father's eye, before you lived and breathed, God knew you, he chose you, and he destined your final destiny to be the salvation of Jesus Christ in eternal heaven. It was a once and for all act. It can never be revisited it can never be reversed or reviewed. Now, many people find this doctrine of election difficult and somewhat disturbing. Wait a minute, we say. Didn't I choose Jesus? Well, I chose Jesus 
at the age of 20, uh, 32 years ago, in my room, J04, in my college. I remember it was a Thursday afternoon. The walls were yellow, and I was in the middle of a landlord essay on D2 restrictive covenants, which are enough to drive anyone to the living gods. And I knelt at my bedside. It was raining, and I prayed a prayer as I handed the keys of my life over to Jesus. Have you done that yet? Today would be a great day to do that. And I made a meaningful choice. I said to Jesus, come and be my king. I chose Christ. But the only reason I was able to do that was because Christ had already chosen me before the beginning of the world in my own guilt and rebellion. I wouldn't have had the will to do it. Christ chose me, therefore I was able to choose him. This doctrine of election and predestination then doesn't start with Augustine or Calvin. It's not just a weird area of reformed theology. It is biblical teaching. It runs all the way through the teaching of Scripture. It's what Jesus taught. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And this doctrine, rightly understood, is not disturbing or frightening, it's comforting or assuring. Because if my salvation was down to my choice for Jesus, I'm so weak and so fickle. What's to say under pressure I might unchoose Jesus? The great news is my salvation, eternally speaking, is secure because before the beginning of the world, he chose me. Imagine an enormous archway, the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Imagine you're walking towards the archway, and above it is inscribed the words, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And we choose for Jesus as we hear that gospel word, and as we move towards the great arc of faith, as we head through the archway of triumph in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we make a meaningful choice. But as we cross through the arch and look back the other way, it's as if these verses are there, chosen before the beginning of the world. It is an incredible doctrine of all the 100 billion people who will ever live as God looked forward from eternity past into history and eternity future. If you're Christian, he chose you. He picked and selected you. This is the privilege of salvation. Well, why me, we ask inevitably. Is it that God got out his divine telescope and sort of looked through it? As he looked through his divine telescope, he kind of saw potential in that person over there, that there would be good in them that actually would lead them to make God want them. It's not that. It can't be that because we're chosen so that we might become holy and blameless. The implication is that we're not. For by virtue of our rebellion against God, we are dead in our sin, incapable of pleasing God. Yet he's chosen us to be the set-apart ones that we might live to his praise and glory, empowered by his grace 
and his spirit. It is the past gift of election. Praise God. This past gift, says Paul, leads on to the present gifts of adoption. Verse 7, for in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, verse 8, that he lavished on us in all wisdom and insights. Now, in verse 7, that word redemption is a commercial word, and it's borrowed from the slave markets. It means that we have been set free through the payment of a price. It means that we have a new status. We were enslaved to sin and judgment, but now through Jesus, we have been liberated from the penalty for our sin, which is the eternal punishments of hell. And what secured it is blood. That word blood is designed to sound horrific. You're driving down the road, you turn the corner through some Pennsylvanian lane, and you, 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 you drive around, and you suddenly see an ambulance. And then there's a police car. The sheriff is there. And you look and you see on the, on the road is, is bloods. And then you see the stretcher with a blanket over it because the person has been killed. It's a horrible thing, bloods. And that word blood in the Bible means the giving up of life in violent death. So God's chosen us before the beginning of the world, and he's redeemed us to be his set-apart people. But the cost of this to God was the giving up of the life of his own son in the brutality of violence, in his death on the cross. This is how much he loves you. Verse 7, we are forgiven through the blood of Christ as our sin is cut away because he was cut away. And maybe this morning we are here with guilt on our consciences. It might be something we've done this week. It might be something that we did 30, 40, 50 years ago. What is on our conscience this morning? Because through the death of Jesus, through his blood, the power shower of grace drowns it away and washes us clean. Praise God's that we are redeemed, and because we are redeemed, we are adopted into the family of God. Verse 5, predestined to be adopted as sons. In Roman law, the child who was adopted into the family gained all the legal rights of the legitimate son in the new family and lost everything to do with the past life. So as you adopted the new boy into the family, he gained all the rights of the natural child. He was a co-heir and regarded as a new person who had a new family. And all the debts of the previous family were wiped out. Well, a friend of mine called Stuart, he's married to Julia. They live in the UK. They had two children by birth and they, they wanted to have a third and then came the happy day when they brought this third child, her name was Alice, into the family. The adoption papers were signed, and at that moment she entered into the family with all of the privileges and rights of the natural children. She lives now in the same house, she has the same surname, she goes on the same vacations, 
She's no longer an outsider, but now an insider, and will inherit the family inheritance one day. And this is our privilege. The Father has included us into the family. The natural son is Jesus, the obedient son. But as we're included by adoption into the family of Jesus, all of the rights and privileges of Christ become ours. And in the Bible, the word son actually means heir. The point is that at the end of the age, we will inherit the heavenly estate through the merits of Jesus Christ, through our union with him, all because of his perfect life and triumphant resurrection and sacrificial death. We have, you have, we possess, you possess the past gift of election, the present gift of adoption. And all of this leads on to the final gift, which is the ultimate one, the future gift of inheritance. Because Paul says in verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, verse 10, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times that the summing up of all things in Christ, in the heavens and in the earth, in him, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Woody Allen once famously said, the future isn't what it used to be. And that could not be more true for the Christian. But how does this future work? Well, for the atheist, it's easy. It's nihilistic oblivion. You head into the great nothing. For the Buddhist or the Hindu, the future is circular. It's a continual reincarnation or karma to nirvana. But according to Paul, do understand and see and marvel that history is linear. Uh, the Christian is a progressive in the sense that we are heading to a progress, to an end and final points. And it comes in verse 10 as this climactic end point is, according to Paul, the summing up of all things in Christ. The problem with being a dual citizen, as I am, I'll tell you, is you have to do not just one tax return, but you have the glorious marvel of having to do two. And they don't quite work because the tax year in Britain runs March to April. Isn't that weird? And then in America, it goes January to December. It's even more strange if you're British. Uh, so I've got to do two tax returns, and it's torture and agony. Well, I did my last one my British one this last week, and thank God for accountants because he has to crunch the numbers and put everything into the correct column, working out what I owe or get back, but mainly what we owe, and the accountant sums it up and then places it all under the column and then charges you a vast uh, uh, a fee uh, for the privilege of using his extraordinarily amazing services. But this word summing up that Paul uses here is borrowed from the accountant's office. What it really means is the day is coming when everything in the universe 
is going to be placed under Jesus' column. At the moment, things are in chaos and flux. We live in a fractured universe of rebellion and disorder. But the day is coming when everything will be placed under Jesus' column as he returns at the end of the age to take his chosen people home to glory and as he executes his eternal judgment on the rebellious. Can Humpty Dumpty be put back together again? That's the great nursery rhyme question, and the answer is no. All the king's horses and all the king's men can't put the fracture of Humpty Dumpty back together again. But in the gospel, through the triumph of the Jesus who lived perfection, who died sacrifice, who raised in triumph, the universe can and will be put back together again as it's summed up, concluded under the rule, under the column of the perfect reign of Jesus. But there's a question. How, how can I be sure that on this great day of summing up, I will end up under the column of salvation in Jesus? That's the pastoral question that worries us when we think about it. Can I really be sure that I'll be under the, the reign of Jesus for salvation? And Paul says we can be certain because he says we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. This is also a commercial word borrowed from really the age and practice of buying and selling. In the ancient world, if you were going to buy something, you'd put down the down payments it's like that, isn't it, with our houses today. You pay the earnest money, and it guarantees this is serious. We're in for the deal. It's going to happen. 10% has been paid. We are going to buy the house. It's the same with Amazon, isn't it? As you buy it on Amazon, you pay it, and then you get that big, frighteningly quick, immediate tick. It's all gone. The money's been paid. Successful purchase, but you haven't yet received it. So it's been paid for, but it's a waiting delivery. And it's like that for us. Jesus has paid the price. His Holy Spirit has sealed us. We are possessed and owned by Christ. And now we are awaiting delivery on the day when Jesus will take us home to glory. That story about that man who died in rural Wyoming is actually unbelievably sad when you think about it. He died there freezing to death under the underpass, totally oblivious to the glorious reality that he was a multi-millionaire 300 times over. But it's like this for us. This coming week, Will we allow our minds and hearts to soar with Paul? Because he's writing from prison, but as his hands are chained, his heart is not, for he sees that in Christ we have received everything, the past gift of election, the present gift of adoption, and the future inheritance of glory. Counts your blessings in Christ. Marvel at his love for you. And live this coming week 
in the light of not what's going on in your life on earth, but in the reality of what you have in him in the heavenly realms. Let's pray as we sit together. Gracious Father, we praise you today with Paul that we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. We thank you that before the world began, you chose us, that now in real time we have been adopted and are your children, and that we have ahead of us this future of summing up the glory of this inheritance as we inherit the universe of glory through Christ. Today, we repent of our self-centeredness and now-centeredness. We ask that our hearts would be filled with praise to you. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.